Let's pray. Let's ask God to meet us in the word this morning. Lord, we open up our, our Bibles. We want to open up our hearts also to you and invite you to come and to speak to us. Thank you for Isaiah, for raising him up, for gifting him, for giving him your words to write so that we could read them and learn and grow and see you in them. And so, Lord, I I pray for your help today upon me. Give me wisdom. Give me your heart, Lord, I pray. Free me from just distraction and just my own sin and, and, uh, and speak through your word to each one of us, Lord, I pray today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 52. And if you don't have a Bible, we want to bring one to you so that you can use it. So go ahead and raise your hand. Be bold. Raise your hand real high. I want you all to be able to look on. Isaiah 52 is on page 613 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Isaiah 52. So these past few weeks... We've been talking about what to do during those times when you're walking in darkness. And the way Isaiah uses that phrase, he's not talking about times when we're walking in sin. He's talking about those times when you know what God has promised to do, and you're trusting his promises, but you're not yet seeing the promises fulfilled. And that can be discouraging. That can even cause you to become disillusioned. So it's those times when you're walking in the darkness of not yet seeing God's promises fulfilled for you. This is what Israel was going through. Isaiah wrote these words, chapters 40 to 66, and especially 50 to 52, to bring encouragement to Israel at a time when she was walking in darkness. She had been conquered. She was enslaved, captured in Babylon. She knew that God had promised to redeem her from Babylon, to bring her back to the promised land. She knew what God had promised, but there she sat as slaves captured in Babylon, and year after year went by, and God hadn't redeemed her, and decade after decade went by, and God hadn't redeemed her. And so there she was, she knew what God had promised, she was trusting in his promise, but he hadn't yet fulfilled his promise, she's walking in darkness. Every follower of Jesus will have seasons where we are walking in darkness in that sense of the word. When we know what God has promised, and whether it's his promise to pour his love into our hearts in a fresh way, or whether it's his promise to provide for us financially, or give us wisdom for a decision, or work through us to see lost people saved, we know what God's promised, we're trusting his promises, we're taking the steps he's calling us to take, but we're not yet seeing the promise fulfilled. And that can be discouraging. That can cause us to become disillusioned. I want to tell you about Ann Judson, who experienced walking in darkness. Early 1800s, Ann, with her husband Adoniram, left from New England, took a boat to Burma, which is present-day Myanmar. Myanmar, Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, They went there because they loved Jesus Christ, and God called them to go there to help Burmese people be forgiven for their sins, and come into the joy of knowing God in the person of Jesus. And so they went. Now, Anne knew that it would be dangerous for two reasons. One reason is that William Carey, missionary to India, had urged them not to go to Burma. Don't go there, he said. Second reason she knew it was dangerous is that every missionary who'd been there had either left or been killed. 
But Anne went with her husband Adoniram, and they got there, and soon after they got there, her husband was arrested and thrown in prison in, in horribly, I mean, just horrifying conditions. And she was there then left in hostile Burma alone with her husband in prison. And here's how she describes the season of her life. She wrote a letter to her brother. Here's how she described how she felt. This is a time of walking in darkness for her. She says, you, my dear brother, can judge how intense were my sufferings during this time. The worst part was the awful uncertainty of our future. I thought Adoniram would suffer a violent death and that I would become a slave and have a miserable existence in the hands of some unfeeling monster. Now, Adoniram was finally freed, but for a year and a half, Anne lived in the darkness of that uncertainty in this hostile country, fending for herself. She found out during the time she was pregnant and she gave birth to little Maria all by herself during that time, bringing food daily to her husband in this horrible place they called a prison. And so during that season, she was walking in darkness. And Israel, while she was in Babylon in exile, she was walking in darkness. And some of you today would say, you're walking in darkness. And in Isaiah 50 and 51, and now he wraps it up today in chapter 52, Isaiah wants to speak words of encouragement to Israel during her time of darkness that we can apply to our lives for our times of darkness. Now, what if you're not in a time of darkness? You will be. Okay? You will be. And you need to hear how the scriptures encourage you to deal with that time so that you can help those who are walking in darkness. Okay, so we all need to hear this word today. This is an amazing passage, 52, 1 through 12. I stopped at 12 because starting in verse 13 and going through 53 is this amazing Isaiah 53 passage about the suffering servant who dies on the cross for our sins. We'll start that next week. But today we're going to wrap up even more encouragement for those walking in darkness. So what does Isaiah call Israel to do? Look at verses 1 and 2. And let me warn you, it's puzzling when you first read this. Look at what he calls Israel to do. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Zion's just another word for Jerusalem, for God's people. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. That's probably referring to take a seat of honor. Take a seat of of honor, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Those are strange commands to give to people who are in chains, in slavery, in a foreign land, right? How can she put on beautiful clothes, shake off the dust, sit in the seat of honor, and get loosed from her chains? How can Israel do that? She's in chains. She's in slavery. How can she do that? What's Isaiah talking about? And what I have found, you've probably found this too, is that when you read something in the scriptures that don't make sense, very often it makes more sense if you just keep reading. Anybody anybody found that? So don't give up. (laughs) I don't get this book. Say, God help me. Open my eyes and then keep reading. And that's what happens to me as I, as I kept reading. In verses 3 through 10, 
it became clear what he was getting at in verses 1 through 2. So let's now go to verses 3 through 10, and we're going to come back to verses 1 and 2. And in 3 through 10, Isaiah tells Israel what God is going to do for her. So what is God going to do for Israel? And he mentions three things. First of all, he says that he will redeem Israel from Babylon. Okay, that's verses 3 through 6. Start with verse 3. He says, For thus says the Lord, You were sold into captivity for nothing, and you shall be redeemed from captivity without money. Okay, so God sold Israel into captivity, not to get money, not because he was short on some cash, but he needed to punish Israel. He told her that he would, and he needed to punish her for her idolatry. And then God says he will redeem Israel from Babylon without money. He won't need to pay somebody to do it. God God does whatever he pleases. I read this morning in Psalm 135, 5 and 6. Whatever God wants to do, he does. And so when God says it's time to redeem my people from Babylon, he will just by his sovereign will move them from Babylon back to the promised land. So here he's promising, I'm going to redeem you. Same idea being repeated then in verses 4 through 6. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. They were oppressed there. And then the Assyrians later oppressed them for nothing, no good reason. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. So now it's Babylon that's oppressing them. First was Egypt, Assyria, now it's Babylon. Their rulers wail, I think that's speaking of Israel's rulers, under this oppression, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, here's what God's going to do, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak, here am I. That is, I'm going to so powerfully deliver them from Babylon in such an amazing, public, awesome, earth-shaking way that they will all know that it's me who's been promising this all along. I will deliver you from Babylon. That's the first thing he says in verses 3 through 6. So while Israel's languishing in slavery walking in the darkness of being there, knowing what God has promised, but not seeing him do his promises, fulfill his promises yet, God says, I will do it. I will redeem you from Babylon. Keep trusting me. That's the first thing God says he will do. But look at what he says next. Second, God will personally and visibly return to Zion. Look at verses 7 and 8. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Here's why. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. He's not talking here about the return of Israel to Zion, to to the promised land. He's talking about the return of God to Zion, to Israel, to the promised land. And he says, eye to eye they will see. That means this is as clearly as if you're seeing someone face to face. So what God is saying he's going to do here is that he himself is going to personally and visibly come to Zion, come to Jerusalem, come to the earth so clearly that his people will see him face to face. Now, when does that happen? Some commentaries thought about it. My, my first thought was, this is when Jesus is born. 
right? Because Isaiah's talked about the coming of the Messiah all through his book. So far, we've seen numerous references. And when Jesus was born, his people could see him face to face. But then, of course, Jesus died, rose from the, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and we can no longer see him face to face. So I, I'm not sure that's what he's referring to here. I think what he's talking about is the end of history, when God will return in the person of Jesus Christ and we will all see him face to face and his people will see him face to face forever. That's what God is promising here. So see what he's doing? Number one, I'm going to redeem you from Babylon. That's going to come in, in your immediate future. But then secondly, look beyond that. Look far past that to the end of history, to the time when you, my people, will see me, your God, face to face. That's the second promise that he wants his people to ponder. Then third, he says that he will comfort and redeem his people in a way that all the nations are going to see. Verses 9 and 10. He says, break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Break forth. Yes! Singing. Here's why. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. Look at this arm, strong. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Okay, now, this can't refer to Israel's return from Babylon because all the nations didn't see that. This is talking about something even greater. In the distant future, at the end of history, God is going to bear his arm in the sight of all of the nations. All the ends of the earth are going to see. God will redeem and comfort his people in such a mind-blowing way, public way, all the nations are going to see it and they will be stunned at the lavish mercy and grace of God comforting and redeeming his people. This is going to happen at the end of history when Jesus Christ returns. So again, Isaiah is pointing beyond. Do we have that timeline? Yeah, so, so here's Israel enslaved in Babylon. Then God will redeem Israel from Babylon. That's the first thing he mentions in verses 3 through 6. And then the second two promises is that God returns to earth and he comforts and redeems his people. And that's still in the future because there's the cross and the center. See the timeline? So what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, yes, God will redeem you from Babylon. That's coming in your immediate future. But don't just look at that. Look beyond that to the distant future. I'm going to come to the earth. You will see me face to face and I will redeem and comfort you in such an amazing way. All the nations are going to see it. You're going to see it and you're going to experience it. Okay, now. Just a little parenthesis here. All this is talking about what God's going to do for his people. His people, his people, his people. Does that have anything to do with us? Yes, it does. We can become part of God's chosen people. That's what this book says. We can become part of God's people. How? Million dollar question. Not by trying to be good enough or by trying to strengthen your spiritual side or by devoting yourself to spiritual practices of meditation or whatever. That's not how we can become part of God's people. There's one way that you... See, some of you right now are part of God's people and some of you are not yet part of God's people. But you could become part of God's people. 
How? One way. By trusting the Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is how. See, here's the problem. We've all mutinied against God. Here we are on SS planet Earth, okay? And we've all mutinied against God, turned our backs upon Him, and we deserve punishment because of our sin. This is the state that we're all in. But the good news is God loves us. He loves you. He wants you to not be punished. He doesn't desire that any perish, but that all come to repentance. And so what did he do? He sent Jesus, and he, we'll read about this in the next chapter, he crushed his only begotten son, fully God, fully man. He crushed him, punishing him on the cross in our place for our sin. So that the moment that you lay down your arms, right? You've you've been mutinying against God. You lay down your arms and you surrender before Jesus Christ from the heart. The moment that you do that, everything changes. First of all, at that moment, who was it that was talking this morning about sins being forgiven? At that moment, all of your sins are forgiven. I mean, look, look at all those sins in the past. Okay. Just, just look back there. All of those are forgiven, forgiven, covered with forgiveness. And all your future sins at that point are forgiven. And all of your present sins at that point are forgiven. So at that moment, all the punishment that you deserve was poured out upon Jesus, and God completely forgives you. So from that moment on, you are forgiven. Not only that, but Jesus pours his love into your heart at that moment, and you, for the first time, are completely filled and satisfied because for the first time you're tasting the joy that you were created to taste knowing God in the person of Jesus Christ and your heart is filled I was walking with a neighbor yesterday and uh, just had a chance to share my testimony with him and just the Lord you know sometimes when you share about this you feel it more than other times and I just said I said Ken I don't want to overstate it but I was so filled with joy and peace and love it was awesome. And he said, he knows because he's tasted that too. So anyway, we had a really good time talking together. So you're forgiven, you're filled, then God's power goes to work in you and starts to change you. So you do start to become more righteous, more patient, more loving. And at that point also then God is now your father. And for the rest of your existence into eternity, he promises to care for your every need. He will guide you. He'll strengthen you. He will comfort you. He will continue to forgive you. He will satisfy you with himself. He will provide for you. The list just goes on and on. And you have become part of God's people at that point. Okay? So some of you right now are not yet part of God's people. I mean, you can go to church every day of the week for decades, and that's not how you become one of God's people. Okay, you can try to be a really good person. That's not how you become part of God's people because you'll never be good enough to make up for the sin that you've committed. There's one way. God has made a beautiful way through Jesus Christ. So like right now, lay down your arms. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died, who rose, who ascended, who's coming again. Trust him. And the moment you do that from the heart, you'll be forgiven, filled, start being changed, God adopts you as his son, as his daughter, and you become part of God's people. So you got it? Okay, so that's how you become part of God's people. So if you're thinking, oh man, I can never, I'm just not a spiritual person, I can never become good enough to become part of God's people, good news! Good news! That's not what it's about. You can become one of God's people right now. Say, I'm, I'm such a sinner. 
That's exactly what you've got to say. Say it to him and be sorry and trust him. Everything will change. No one here is disqualified from this. No matter how bad you've been. You get this? Okay, that's how you become part of God's people. So you can be included in these verses that talk about what God does for his people. Okay, now. So here's what God has promised to do for Israel and, okay, by extension with some changes for us. First of all, he promises to, re- to redeem them from Babylon. He's going to take care of their immediate needs by his promises in his perfect time. And then he's going to take care of them down the road in an amazing way. He's going to come. They're going to see him. He's going to redeem them and comfort them. So, here's what it means that you're part of God's people. It means that what God promises to do for Israel, he's going to do for you at the end of history. Okay, first of all, what this means is that you will see him face to face. End of history. Think of what it would mean to see your creator who made the universe standing before him, seeing him face to face. Jan and I were in Yosemite a few weeks ago and we, we walked to the base of El Capitan. Anybody ever walked to the base of El Capitan? Not because we were in a, we just like looked at it. We didn't go do anything. Anyway, we just looked. The El Capitan's like, what was it, how many? Is that 3,000 feet? Plus it goes down 4,000. Anyway, but we just, I just wanted to go just to, just to stand there at the base of this thing and it was huge. And when you're before a monolith massive like that, you feel so small, right? And that's what it'll be like standing before God, except he's infinitely bigger. And what you feel coming from him is love and care and joy in having little you be there, okay? So the day's going to come when you will see him face to face, and then he is going to so comfort and redeem you that all the nations are going to be stunned. All the nations are going to see him, creator God, wiping every tear from your eyes. Such a mark of individual care and gentle, compassionate love. The God of the universe. No more tears. It's over. You're home. And all the nations will see him doing that for you. Look at how he's wiping Morris's tears. The nations will be stunned. Okay? Not only that, at that moment, he's going to free you permanently from every remnant of sin. Every barrier that's held you back from beholding him and worshiping him and loving him, all the the weakness of of sin and of pride and of jealousy, he's going to free you. Don't you hate your sin? Ah, I just have been so grieved by some of my sin this week. And the day's going to come when he's going to permanently free me from all of it and he will permanently free you from all of it and the nations will see his power and they'll just be stunned. Then he's going to give you a new resurrection body, right? No more weakness, no more pain. New resurrection body and he's going to make himself so real to you so that forever, in an ever-increasing way, you will be enraptured with joy in beholding him and worshiping him and loving him. And all the nations are going to see him doing this for you who have been a mutineer against him, who has rebelled against him, but he paid for your sins on the cross and now he's lavishing his mercy and his love upon you. The nation will just be stunned as they watch him do that. That's in the future. Now the question is, what does that have to do with your darkness now? I mean, Israel is in slavery in Babylon. What does this have to do with them being in slavery now? You are unemployed now. How does that help you now? 
okay? You're, you're struggling to get answers for a decision you've got to make, and God hasn't given you wisdom yet. How does that help you now? You might be in chronic pain from illness. How does that help you now? In every way. Here's why. When you're walking in darkness, there's two things you need to focus on. Not just one, two. The one you need to focus on initially, and then we're going to talk about the second one in a second, is what has God promised to do for your immediate darkness? What does he promise to do for you as you're seeking him for wisdom? He will give it to you in his time. What does he promise to do for Israel as they're enslaved in Babylon? He will deliver them in time. What does he promise to do for you as you're seeking his presence? He will pour his presence out upon you in time. So you, yes, do focus on those promises of what he's going to do in your immediate future. But what Isaiah is calling Israel to do here is that it's even more important to focus on the promises that have to do with the distant future. What will happen at the end of history when the Messiah comes back for his second coming and what God will do then. Now why is that even more important? It's because when Jesus comes back, that is the answer to all the darkness. That's when darkness will completely stop forever. Think about it. When Israel went back to Babylon, she was freed. Wonderful thing. It was a great blessing of God. Did she ever experience this kind of darkness again? Yes, she did. Right? When you get delivered from your next, from the difficulty you're facing, whether it's a difficulty of work or financial provision or whatever, will you, will you ever have any darkness again in this life? Yes, you will. Between now and the second coming, we will have seasons of darkness. We're living in the already of what God has done wonderfully for us and the not yet that we haven't yet seen all the promises fulfilled because when are they completely fulfilled? When he comes back. That's when the promises are completely fulfilled. That's when all the darkness will be gone. You will never again walk in darkness. You'll never again have any promise. I'm trusting you, God. I'm trying to trust your timing. But why isn't this happening yet? Never again will you have that. Because once Jesus comes back, all the promises are fulfilled now, at that point, completely. And so when you're walking in darkness, there's two things to focus on. One is, yes, the immediate promises of what God will do for you now. He will redeem you from Babylon, Israel, yes. But... Don't set all your hope there because there's something greater to set your hope in. The return of my Messiah at the end of history. Two scriptures to consider on this point. Um, 1 Peter 1.13 where Peter says, uh, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober in spirit, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What should you set your hope fully on? The second coming. That's what your hope should be fully set on. Now why set your hope fully there? Because that is the only sure and certain thing. There's lots of ambiguities in walking with Christ in this life. Sometimes he answers prayers immediately. Sometimes he answers prayers 10 years down the road. We trust him. He's wise. He's loving. His timing is flawless. Every bit of it is to bring us great good. What we set our hope fully on is his return at the end. The grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, ask yourself, what is your hope fully set on? Every human being has something in their future that they're looking to. Yes, watching the Giants this afternoon. Or whatever it might be, you know. How the stock market's going to open tomorrow morning. Or get to go surfing, or whatever it might be, okay? And, and Peter says... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is your hope fully set on? Jesus' return 
is what will never disappoint you. It is certain, all-satisfying. It'll be stunning, the comfort and the redemption that God gives to you. That's one scripture. Second one was um, Hebrews 13, 14. Author of Hebrews says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Here we do not have a lasting city. San Jose is not going to last. Okay? But we're seeking the city which is to come. What city is that? The new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. Are you seeking the city which is to come? Is that the city that you're seeking? Or are you seeking this city? The new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Okay, so what do we do when we're walking in darkness? We do trust God's promises for immediate needs. We pray those, we bank on those, we rely on those. But even more important it is that we put our hope in what he will do at the end of history. When Christ comes back, we will see him face to face. See, all through this time now, we see in a mirror dimly, Paul says, right? Right now, we see God dimly. We see him, we have tastes of his goodness, and those tastes are infinitely satisfying compared to anything else that's around us. But, oh, we want more, right? The greatest outpouring of God's presence to you now in this life is nothing compared to what you will have when you no longer see through a mirror dimly, but you now see him face to face. Right? And so that's what our hope is set upon. All right. So, how do we do this? Now, with this in mind, let's go back to verses 1 and 2. And then also verses 11 and 12. What do we do? What is Isaiah telling Israel to do in verses 1 and 2? Let's start there. And first of all, he says, wake up to what's in your future. Okay, some of you are in darkness right now. You're, You're in the midst of trials, difficulties. You're not seeing God fulfill his promises as quickly as you'd like him to, and, and you're in this time of darkness. And when you're in that place, it's very easy to start getting spiritually sleepy, right? And you forget what God has promised to do for you down the road. The, the future of Jesus Christ returning, you being redeemed, you being comforted, you knowing him, that gets very dim because all you see is your unemployment, your sickness, the persecution you're facing at your workplace, possibly. That's all you're seeing. And you become sleepy and you forget about what God has promised. And so what what Isaiah is saying to Israel in verses 1, he says, wake up. Wake up. That is, understand what's coming. So this is my word to you. Wake up, Mercy Hill Church. Wake up to what is in your future. You, if you're trusting Jesus Christ... You will see God face to face one day. It is absolutely certain. There is no question about it. You will see him. You'll be filled with joy and satisfaction and pleasure and delight in beholding him. That is in your future. So wake up. Understand that that day is coming. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. You'll be welcomed to the new heavens and the new earth. Wake up to what's in your future. Now, here's, here's an illustration of how this might work. Let's say that you're struggling financially. But then you hear that you're going to keep struggling financially for the next year. Ah. But then you hear that at the end of that year, a long-lost uncle that you didn't know you had is going to send you a cashier's check for $10 billion. Would that change how you feel during this next year? Yes! <laughs> I'm doing great. 
but you're, nothing's changed. That's all right. Something's coming. Something amazing's coming. Okay, now, now what if you knew that that $10 billion was coming, but you're still, oh man, I just, gosh, it's just hard to make ends meet. You know, I mean, things are just so hard. It's really difficult. It's like, no, wake up. Remember what's happening. Remember what your uncle's going to do. What Jesus is going to do is infinitely better than a $10 billion cashier's check. And it is there. So wake up. How many times this last week have you just rejoiced in what's coming when Jesus returns? Mm. So wake up. Secondly, put on strength and beauty and take off your chains. This is very interesting. He says, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Babylon. Here's what's going on here. When you walk in darkness and you're in the thick of trials, you can let that darkness define you and chain you. Right? So Israel could easily have thought, we are slaves in Babylon. That's who we are. And forgot that they were the people of God. Can you see how that could have happened? Who are we? We're slaves. That's just who we are. Nothing's ever going to change. And so you feel weak, and you feel ugly, and you feel like you're sitting in the dust. And you might feel like you are spiritually dry. That's just who you are. Or you are sick, or you are unemployed. But that's not who you are. You're God's people. You're God's people. By grace and mercy, he's taken us mutineers and washed us clean from our sin, punished our sins in his son, and he's made us his people. And so the day is coming when Jesus will crown you with glory and honor. Amazing. The nations must be, he's a mutineer. Yes, but by my mercy, I saved him, forgave him, and he's going to crown you with glory and honor. And by Jesus' mercy, the day is coming when you, who are suffering financially now, I don't get all this, but you will inherit what? The earth. Right? So Jesus said, and you will reign with Christ. Now, I don't know what all those mean. All I know is, wake up! Okay? Put on strength. Clothe yourself with the beauty of that. Get rid of the, the chains of walking in the darkness and letting those things define you. That's not who you are by God's grace through Jesus Christ. You are the people of God. You're a child of God. With all the honor he's going to lavish upon you in that last day, then you will turn and you will cast all your crowns at his feet because he is the one who gets all the glory because he did that for someone like you. But that's who you are. Does that make sense? Put on strength and beauty and take off your chains. And then third, depart from sin. Look at verses 11 and 12. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. He's talking to Israel. They're in Babylon. Strange command to tell slaves. Clank, clank. Go out, go out. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now, what's he telling them to do? She can't depart from Babylon. She's enslaved. Is he telling them to like, start some rebel you know, insurrection? I don't think so. 
He's calling her to depart from the sin in Babylon. Depart from the, you're there in Babylon as slaves. Depart from the sin in Babylon. Why? Because you're not going to be here very long. Right? You're not going to be here very long. Depart from the sin of Babylon. And same with us. We can't depart from the sinful world, but he calls us to depart from the sin of the world. Why? Because we're not going to be here very long. You're not going to be here very long. That's why. Now, how do we depart from sin? This is a a huge question which separates man-made religion from the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you depart from sin? Not by gritting your teeth. Not by, I'm going to really try to be more patient this afternoon with my kids. Not by moral resolution or relying on your willpower. That's impossible. It's impossible. Even if you pull it off for a while, you'll be so self-righteous, it'll be worse than, I won't go there anyway, all right? It's impossible. How do you do it? There's one way, though. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I experienced it this week. You come to Jesus as you are, with your impatience and your jealousy and your greed. You come to him as you are, and you say, help me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. I did that this week. I just was grieved. I get jealous sometimes over pastors with bigger churches, which is just stupid, I know, because, I mean, look look at you. This is awesome, you know. But anyway, I'm an idiot. So, okay. And I was just, I was just grieved by it. And, uh, and so this week, Jesus, here I am. I hate this. What is this? It's just, it dishonors you. It, it's, it's just wrong. And so you come to Jesus as you are. It's very humbling, isn't it? It's very humbling. All I can read to the table is my sin. I'm back, Lord. And your cross is sufficient for me. Would you come? And, the, and when you do that, he will forgive you. You repent of it. He'll forgive you. And he will so satisfy you with his presence that the lure of inferior satisfactions will lose its power. Right? Every temptation out there is an inferior satisfaction compared to Jesus Christ. And when you taste the superior satisfaction of his love and his presence, like, what an idiot I was. I'm so sorry. I, I want to follow you and trust you for everything. And see, he will do that for you. You come to him as you are, You confess your sin as it is. You ask him to change you. You seek his face. He satisfies you. And then you step out and you start to obey him. You'll become more patient. You love your wife. You'll, You'll serve your kids. You'll work honestly and hard at your job. You'll forgive those who've hurt you. You'll be bold in witness. You'll pray. You'll meditate on the scriptures. You'll be changed. You'll become perfect. When does that come? Second coming. Okay but you'll be growing. That's what he does. Okay, so church, some of you are in walking in darkness. What should you do? Two things. First, do focus on the promises in God's word of what he will do that pertain to your darkness. Okay, if you are seeking him and not finding, you will find. Keep seeking. Trust his love and goodness for the timing. Don't fall back, don't get cynical, don't get hard, press in. That's exactly where he wants you to be. And every moment of the lack of outpouring is a sweet setup for the wonder of what he's going to do. So press in. So trust his promises for the darkness. If you're struggling with work, finances, he will provide for you, Matthew 6.33. Trust him, apply for jobs, do what you can do, pray, have your home group pray for you, God will work. He will. So, number one, trust him for the promises that pertain to your immediate darkness. 
But number two, even more important, even more important, I'm seeing it this week from Isaiah 52. Set your heart on what God will do at the end of history. Set your heart there. Jesus will come back and put an end to all the darkness. He will free you from all the remnant of sin that's in you. He will wipe every tear from your eyes. He will welcome you into the new heavens and the new earth, give you a resurrection body, give you the ever-increasing joy of knowing him forever. Set your hope there. Because when you set your hope there, it will encourage you, you will rise up, you'll be clothed with beauty, the chains of sin will be cast off, you'll be changed. This is how Ann Judson did it. Let me just read you the full quote. I just gave you the first part. Let me read the first part and then and then show you what her secret was. What sustained her during 18 months in a hostile country in Burma with her husband in a horrifying jail where he was just in agony all day long and you're finding out you're pregnant, you give birth to Maria. Oh my gosh. Here's what she said. You, my dear brother, can judge how intense were my sufferings. The worst part was the awful uncertainty of our future. I thought Adoniram would suffer a violent death that I would become a slave and have a miserable, though short existence in the hands of some unfeeling monster. But God comforted me in ways that were neither few nor small. That's kind of old English way of this. What's she saying? God comforted me lots. Okay? During that time, God comforted me. How? How did God comfort her? He taught me to look beyond this world to that rest, that peaceful, happy rest where Jesus reigns and oppression never enters. Burma, hostile country, alone, husband in prison, who knows what the future is. She found comfort thinking about the world to come. Jesus' return, what he would do when he returns. That strengthened her. That comforted her. That helped her. That's what you need to do today if you're walking in darkness. Now let's stand up. I want to pray this over us. And I especially, I just feel like, like God wants me to, to, to come back to the question of are you one of God's people? Are you one of God's people? This is the most important issue here. Some of you, I would guess, in a group this size, you're not. Okay? And... Those of us who are, we're no better than you. We just want to show you how you can become one just like we became. It's through Jesus Christ. And so I just want to urge you right now, lay down your arms. Stop your mutiny. Surrender your life in trust to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's here looking upon you with longing to have you do this. Okay? And receive him into your life as your savior. He will pay for all of your sins. He will set you free from the power of sin. He will clothe you with his perfect righteousness. He's your savior. Receive him into your life as your savior. Receive him into your life as your Lord. He is the Lord. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the ruler, the boss over the universe. You got to acknowledge it. Or you're in rebellion. So receive him into your life as your Lord. You're not your Lord, right? You shouldn't be. Submit to him as Lord. Welcome him in. He is the most loving, wise, kind Lord you could ever have. And then welcome him into your life as your heart-satisfying treasure.
He will satisfy you, not with what he gives, that's not the point, but with who he is, who he will be to you, the love he'll pour into your heart, beholding his glory, his majesty, his radiance. He will satisfy you. So Lord, would you bring your power upon us right now? I want to pray first, Lord, for those who see that they are not yet your people. And I ask that right now, you would cause them by your power to lay down their arms, to surrender, to trust you, to receive you into their lives, Lord Jesus. Do that right now, I pray, by your power. I'm going to pray also, Lord, for those right now who are in darkness. Help them to trust you for the promises that pertain to their immediate darkness. But Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen in them trust in what you will do at the end of history. Strengthen in them trust in what will happen, Jesus, when you return. Help them right now to set their hope fully on your return. And that that would be a means of comfort for them and strength for them and peace for them. Come and do that right now, I pray, Lord, for the glory of your name. I pray that everyone here who's walking in darkness now, they would taste of the comfort that Anne Judson experienced. Come and do that now, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you. Lord, I pray for all of us. For your power to come, to comfort, to strengthen. Lord, thank you that we can be your people through trusting Jesus Christ. And thank you that you will comfort us in every point of darkness as we set our hearts upon your return, Lord Jesus. So pour that out upon us now, Lord. Those who've come forward and us here at Mercy Hill Church, pour this out upon us that we would be at peace and strong and comforted in our darkness to display your goodness to the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.